You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. This morning, and let's go to the book of Luke, please. Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9 in your Bibles. And it's good to see some folks back that maybe have been... uh, uh, you know, with, with COVID and everything, you know, some folks have been sticking at home and all that, and I understand that. It's good to see some folks back who've been uh, watched online or something for a while, and we're glad that you're here. Look forward to fellowshipping with everybody after the service a little bit. And so stick around at 11.30. Now, we usually get out about 11. 11.30 is when the meal starts. So stick around. When you leave after the service, you can go out, ride the mechanical bull, or laugh at those that do. And uh, take photo. No, you, you, you know, post all that stuff if you don't want to there. But uh, but then we'll uh, we'll come back in at 11:30 for the meal. It's going to be a delicious meal. You say, what's the cost? Nothing. It's free and it's good. And so stick around and fellowship. We'll also have popcorn and snow cones outside for you there. There is a picture spot in the fellowship hall, a beautifully decorated picture spot. If you want to go in there and get some pictures taken with with your family, and uh, I know that uh, some of them uh, want to take part of that. Absolutely. And uh, I, I was on the, coming onto the platform, and I was like, what's this balloon doing here? Like, what's the six about? Like, what's going on? And really, I've been so busy with Roundup Sunday, the mission, uh, the ministry expo, and all this stuff. I told my wife a couple days ago, I was like, she, she said, oh, yeah, it's, our, it's your six-year anniversary, by the way. And I, I couldn't even believe that. It's just mind-blowing that I've been pastoring for six years. And that's, many of you have stuck with me for that long. That's pretty amazing. Like, hey, I want to clap for you, all right? God bless you. I don't know how you've done it. I appreciate your faithfulness more than my own because I don't know how you stuck with me for that long, but that's great. So thankful for all of you and for the new people that uh, maybe came during those six years. Uh, I'm the best pastor we've ever had here. I just want you to know. So um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. But uh, looking forward to uh, what God, uh, if God tarries, just spinning our life here. And Aletna, if he lets us do that. Luke chapter number 9, as you're turning there, um, I do want to just make one or two quick announcements. This next Sunday, September 4th, our bookstore is reopening. I'm excited. Wow, all right. Some are very excited about the bookstore reopening. That doesn't mean they're free stuff. You can't just take them, Miss Diane. Don't be going in there and... Taking stuff, all right. Not to call anybody out, but right back over there. Um, but we have, we've got Bibles in there. Uh, there are a lot of good, just Christian books. Sometimes you you read books, and you know, what do I even read? There's some great Christian books in there. Every topic. Uh, we're getting more and more Christian music in there, and so I encourage you next Sunday that'll be open. This ministry expo thing, I'm so excited about. We're opening up our fellowship hall. It's going to be a whole thing. We've got, we're going to have tables set up with ministries all around. And you can go. And, and look, you, know, you, you going there and getting more information is not you taking a blood oath that you have to serve in that ministry the rest of your life. Okay? It's just you're getting more info. And if you're interested in more info, you can sign up and we can let you more, know more about that. But there's just tons of opportunities. And God has, has given every Christian giftings to use in the church. And we want you to have opportunities. Sometimes, you know, you go to church and it's like, well, uh, I want to get involved in church. Okay, you can be an usher or nursery worker. But there's a lot more to do than that. So we want to give you 
a multiple opportunities. For some of you who may be introverts and you think, I'll never teach a lesson, well, hey, you can help clean our solar panels once a month, okay? So there are things to do, and we want to give you opportunities to help. That's not the only thing we have, okay? There's more than that, but I hope that you'll be here for that. Um, and then Brother Josh announced this, but I, I wanted to just clarify, just in case uh, uh, you, you were wondering, the, the, the gifts for the missionaries. If you look on the table, their form is here for which day they're here. They're only here one day each. So if you're getting a gift for them, you can give it to them. We're going to try to have a basket set up on the far table in the foyer there for them as well that you can put that in on the day that they're here, okay? All right, Luke chapter number 9 <clears throat> in your Bibles. And I want to preach a message this morning that uh, God laid on my heart the other day just pretty clearly. And uh, I want to preach a message out of Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at three passages in Luke, all dealing with the same subject matter. So look, let's read these verses and then we'll get into it. And Luke chapter 9, verse 57. <clears throat> Luke 9, 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, talking to Jesus, Lord, I will follow thee <clears throat> whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. <clears throat> now, studying for that doesn't indicate that the father was already dead. It seems like he was saying, hey, you know, as soon as my parents pass away and I get all that taken care of, then I'll follow you. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house. Let me get the going away party. Let me, uh, let's go back and, and let me just enjoy the time with my family. We'll rejoice, throw a little shindig, and then I'm ready, and then I'll, I'll serve you. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to preach a message to this morning entitled, The Tests of a Disciple. The Tests of a Disciple. So let's pray together, and I'll explain what we're talking about. Father, help us today to really investigate in our own hearts, not in anybody else's, in our own hearts, and find out, are we being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What, uh, how can we know that? What does it involve? And I just pray this morning you would work a work in our hearts to, if we're not in that way, that we would get in that way. And I pray that you'd speak to us today. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I spent the first 10 years of my life in the South. I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know that. I've told you many times. And I spent my first 10 years there. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the state, but it's not exactly known for its technological advances, all right? It's a pretty simple state, and, uh, you know, mosquitoes, snakes, deer, all of that kind of stuff, you know? And when I was growing up, uh, I remember, and I'm not making fun of Arkansas, I'm from there, but um, I will tell you that's where the toothbrush was invented, was Arkansas, because anywhere else it would have been called the teeth brush, but anyway... Um, you may get that one later, but uh, I, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I got to do a lot of things, but I, I, you know, in, involving country, you know, the country and things like that, 
And I remember when my brother started dressing Western. Like, it was, a, it was a thing back then. People were dressing Western, and my brother got, like, those belts that are made of, like, they look like hemp or something. But and then he's got, you know, the shirts like this, and the cowboy hat, and the boots, and, like, the bolo tie, and, like, everywhere they went. And, and it was, you know, there's country music. It was very much a Western type of atmosphere. But you know what I'm thankful? Growing up, you know, we had horses and cows and all that, and it was country. But I'm so thankful I never had to plow anything. I'm very thankful. And when I was a teenager, I moved to the Midwest, and, there were, and it was agriculture everywhere, and the fields and all that. I'm so thankful I never had to plow anything, because it just looks hard. You know, you see the picture here behind the text, and just those straight furrows, there's straight lines there. I'm so thankful that was never a part. How many of you have ever played the game, the Oregon Trail? The Oregon Trail card game or computer game? Some of you are like, what is that? All right, so it's basically a, a game about... You know, if you're on the Oregon Trail to the Willamette Valley, you know, like they did back in the day. And as you're going along, you know, you have to pick up cars. And it's like, oh, I have dysentery. You died, you know. Or you got snake bit. You got attacked by a bear. You got thrown over a cliff. And all these, you know, things. And, and every time I think of, like, the Old West, I kind of picture, like, the, uh, you know, the, the Oregon Trail and all that. And I'm so glad, like, even playing that game, I'm so glad I never had to go through some of those things. We've been blessed, you know, and I know maybe some of you had to do that. But look what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about plowing in this picture. In this illustration, in this story here, he's talking about plowing. But get what he's saying. He's not just talking about plowing. He's talking about discipleship using the analogy of plowing. Look again at verse 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. Well, let me first go bid them farewell, which are at, my, at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes here. But we're talking about discipleship. What is a disciple? We hear that word a lot. We talk about discipleship in church. What is a disciple? Simply, it's a learner. It's a follower. That's what a disciple is, a follower or a learner of someone else. If you are going to disciple someone, it means you're going to teach that person or train that person. And if we are disciples, if we are followers, then the question is, who are we following or what are we following? Because that determines what we're a disciple of. Whoever you follow, whatever you follow, that's what you are, or who you are a disciple of. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus said, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Disciples have masters. Disciples have teachers. Disciples have somebody they're following. In the book of uh, Acts, you see that Paul was a disciple for a long time of a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was, the, was a scholar of the day. He was the brilliant mind of that day. And for a long time, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. But something happened in Acts chapter 9 that changed Paul's life, where he went from being a disciple of Gamaliel to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you look at other religions, you look at Mormonism, Mormons are disciples of Joseph Smith. If you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, they are a disciple of Charles Taze Russell. Christian scientists are disciples of Mary Baker Eddy. And you can go down through the list and see who someone follows, who someone learns from, is who they're a disciple of. <clears throat> now, if we are disciples, the question is, who are we following? What are we a disciple of? 
Now, I know that for, for most Christians, the, the, for, for, no, for all Christians, the correct answer is supposed to be Christ. We're Christians follow Christ. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. But oftentimes, I don't, I don't think a lot of Christians, even in today, they don't follow or truly are disciples of Christ. They follow sports teams. They follow people on social media. They follow maybe even Christian influencers. They follow famous TV preachers, but they're not actually following Christ for themselves. And I hope that's not true of us. I hope we could all say, no, 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 no. It's Jesus first. Now, why do people not follow Christ? I'll tell you why, because it's hard. It's hard. We're going to see in a minute that there's a cost. We're going to see in a minute that there's a cross. But I want to show you a couple of things here. The test of discipleship. What does it mean? How can we tell if we are truly a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, which we all should be? Number one, I want to give you a couple of things this morning quickly. I want to say this. The first test of a discipleship, it starts with the test of true conversion. That is the first test of discipleship. It starts with the test of a true conversion. What does that mean? Okay, we know this, but I want to take a minute. We, we, we know, if you're a Christian in here, you know what salvation is about. You know that before you were saved, you were in your sin, you were in your flesh, there was an old nature in you, that's all you knew. But the moment you accepted Christ as Savior, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, that spirit was made alive, you were given a new nature, you've got the old nature that only sins, but you've got the new nature that only does right. And so you've got this, uh, this battle going on, but you have a brand new nature. You've been converted. It doesn't mean you went from being, uh, you know, this religion to this religion. It means you went from being lost to being saved. It means you went from being on your way to hell to being on your way to heaven, from being without Christ to being in Christ. That's the conversion we're talking about. But I have to be honest, and God has laid this on my heart so much, that I am fearful for a lot of Christians that there is not a true conversion. I'm fearful for a lot of Christians. Wasn't it Jesus who said, there will be many that come to him in that day saying, Master, did we not cast out demons in thy name? Did we not prophesy in thy name? And he will say, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Even people that were doing miracles, you say, well, if they're doing miracles, they're of God. Can I remind you, Judas did miracles? If you read the Bible, Judas did miracles, but he wasn't saved. He did not have that relationship with Christ. So doing a miracle doesn't mean that you're saved. There has to be a true conversion. You can't follow Christ if you don't know Christ. You have to know him. Salvation starts us on the path of discipleship. And I just have a fear that there are a lot of people in our world, a lot of people that claim to be Christians who never have really trusted Christ. It was March 26, 1991, in that, in that town of Arkansas, Pine Bluff, where I was a kid. I remember to this day getting saved. I remember the feeling of sin. I remember the feeling of guilt. Even as a six-year-old, I remember that feeling, and I remember I wanted it so bad. Here's what, here's what makes me fearful about a lot of Christians, is that when they give their testimony, it was almost like when they were presented the gospel, it was like, okay, I guess. All right, I just have to pray a prayer? Is that all I have to do? Okay, I'll, I'll pray a prayer. Or maybe somebody came and they said, all right, do you want to go to hell? No. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes. Say these words, and then you say the words. But I want to just tell you that every single time in the Bible, when you see a conversion, there was labor involved. Now, I'm not saying they had to work to get saved. What I'm saying is there was a desire and a, I want this. 
The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violence take it by force. There was a desire. There was, I, I, I'm, I'm late. I want this, God. I want salvation. I don't want to go to hell. It's not something you have to get talked into. It's something that you want so badly, and you're begging God for. It's a true decision, a true desire to turn to Christ and him alone. It's not an addendum. It's not like, well, my life is great, but, you know, I guess I'll just pray this prayer. That is not true conversion. Look, if nothing changed after you got saved, then maybe you were not changed. If nothing changed about your behavior or lifestyle after you trusted Christ, maybe you were never converted really because there should have been a great change when you were born again. And I'm not here to make people doubt their salvation. If you know that you know, that's wonderful. What I'm saying is I have a fear. And I, every time I read, you, we can't ignore the scriptures. How many scriptures talk about by your fruit, by their fruits you shall know them? How many scriptures talk about, hey, uh, they'll be able to tell you're my disciple by your love one for another. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you're truly saved, you will do this. He that, uh, in 1 John, I'll just read you the verse. It says there, he that, com, uh, verse 6 of, of 1 John 3, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. Nobody is sinless. I agree. Sineth means a continual habit of sin. And people that are truly in Christ are not living a continual, habitual, sinful life. There's conviction. There's the, there's the desire to change. There is the desire to do better. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And what that's, again, saying there is that new nature inside of you cannot sin. It's not saying that if you are truly saved, you'll never sin. It's saying if you are truly saved, there will be good works that show that you are saved. Now look, I'm going to be very clear. You don't have to do any good work to get saved. You don't have to go to church your whole life. You don't have to give money in the offering to get saved. You don't have to do anything to get saved except turn to Christ and say, God, save my soul from hell. I'm trusting in you and you alone. That's all you got to do. That's it, that sincere turning to Christ. But over and over in the Bible, James chapter 2, 1 John, the book of John, tells us that if we truly are saved, there will be works that show it. There will be works that show that we truly did trust Christ. And I want to encourage you, maybe your salvation testimony is a little obscure. Maybe as you look back on it, there was never a, 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 a real desire to even get saved. Or maybe it's somebody that you know and you're looking at their life, and that's such a hard thing to do, and I'm not trying to tell you to you know, judge, is everybody else saved or not? People can be backslidden, I understand that. But there should always be a spiritual desire in a true child of God. The first test of discipleship is true conversion. you got to get that settled. And if you're not sure about that, what a great day to do it, Roundup Sunday. The second test of a disciple is the test of consecration. I want to explain that. Go to, you're in Luke chapter 9. Let's look back earlier in the passage here. Luke chapter number 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23. The test of consecration. What is consecration? Well, the technical definition is the act or ceremony of separating from a common to a sacred use. It went from a common use to a sacred use. When we consecrate ourselves to God, we are no longer like everybody else without Christ. We are consecrated. We have separated ourselves for a spiritual use. 
to be used of God. That's what consecration is. We're, we've dedicated ourselves to the service and worship of God. And that is what a true disciple does. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of, his holy, of the holy angels. So we see another, uh, Jesus talking about discipleship again here. And as we're looking at this, we're talking about consecration. We're talking about self-sacrifice. We're talking about saying, I'm no longer living the way I was. I am dedicated to God. It is Jesus all the way, every day, every hour and every day, as we said earlier. It is all Jesus. I am willing to lay aside my desire and my will and my goals and my dreams and my ambitions to seek after the will of God for my life. That's what we're talking about with consecration. A disciple sets aside the goals that this world tells us to have. They set aside their own plans and they choose self-sacrifice. You know what that means? Verse number 23 tells us that it means picking up a cross. It means picking up a cross. A cross was a symbol of death. It means you have to die to your will and to be consecrated to God. Be consecrated to Jesus Christ. Now look, if, if we're going to lay down our own will and pick up the cross that Christ wants us to bear, you say, why would we do that? Because we're disciples of Jesus. Remember what he did? He said, not my will, but thine be done. And then what did he do the very next morning? He picked up a cross. Not his own, but our cross. And he carried that cross to Calvary where he died. And then he says, before that, he says, if anyone will follow me, guess what that involves? You're going to have to walk the same path I walked. You're going to have to say, not my will, but thine be done. And you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow God, follow Christ. And that leads to the crucifixion. It leads to putting yourself to death, putting your flesh, putting your will to death. Well, this is what I've always wanted to do with my life. And I've, I've always dreamed of this or that. That's great. But guess what? We were not put on earth to do our will. We were put on earth to do God's will. And being a disciple means giving it to God and saying, not my will, but thine be done. That is a true disciple of Christ. That's a true disciple when you go to work every day and you say, God, what's your will for me today at work? God, what's your will for me at the grocery store? God, what's your will for me on the freeway? God, what's your will for me in the Taco Bell drive-thru? Which, get out of the drive-thru, folks. Taco Bell, come on now. But, you know, what is your will for my life? God, what do you want me to do? You want me to witness? You want me to tell somebody about Christ? Adoniram Judson was a famous missionary years ago. He was in Burma for 18 years. Hot, humid Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. And he was there for 18 years without a furlough. Didn't come off the field for 18 years. This is 150 years ago. He lived there for six years without one convert. Six years in Burma without one person saved, just by himself. He endured torture. He endured imprisonment. And he even said later that he never saw a ship sail away without wishing he was on board. He never saw a ship that he said, I wish I could just go home. His wife got sick, her health broke down, 
and he put her on a, home, uh, on a homebound vessel, a ship going back home, and he knew because of where they were and how long it would take to get back, he knew he wouldn't see her for two years. His wife, unbelievable. When that happened, he wrote this in his diary. If we could find some quiet resting place on earth where we could spend the rest of our days in peace, that's what he wanted. But at the end of that very diary entry, he kind of steadied himself, and he wrote this. Life is short. Millions of Burmese people are perishing. I am almost the only person on earth who has attained their language to communicate salvation. What was he saying? He said, man, if I had my way, I'd be on a ship right now. I'd be sitting on the coast. I'd be relaxing. Man, I would just be enjoying some days of peace after my labor. But God has called me to a people who have nobody to tell them about the gospel. And so he stayed. By the way, he did see tons of converts eventually, but it took a long time. That's somebody who said, you know what? I can save the comfort and the rewards for heaven, but God's called me to follow him. Now look, God may not have called you to be um, a missionary to Burma, but maybe he's called you to be a witness at your workplace. He's called you to be wholly dedicated to him. That may not mean full-time service, but you are supposed to be wholly dedicated to God. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. That we sing that song. Someone said the mark of a saint is not perfection, but consecration. A saint is not a man without faults, but a man who has given himself without reserve to God. I heard about a story about a young man who was convicting, convicted by the preaching and the Holy Spirit was speaking to him. And so during the message, he got out a piece of paper and he wrote down everything he would, he would stop doing. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. And then on the other side of the paper, he wrote down everything he was going to start doing. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing And he made this list. And he came to the altar during the invitation. He knelt down and just had no peace about it. So the next service, he went back to his seat, and then when he was in church again, God spoke to him again, and he took that list out, and he wrote a bunch of more stuff down that he would stop doing, and wrote a bunch of stuff down that he would start doing. And he came back to the altar that day after the service, and he knelt down, and he said, you know, just, it's still not right. God, what, well, I'm trying to give things up. And so he went to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, what, what's the deal here? What's the deal? And the pastor said, you're doing it wrong. He said, if you want to be consecrated to God, take a blank sheet of paper, sign your name at the bottom, and give that to God. That's what you do. That's consecration. There's a test of true conversion. There's a test of consecration. There's a test of commitment. The test of commitment. And we just read these verses about putting your hand to the plow. Let me just remind you, Jesus said, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What's that talking about? When you're plowing a field, and I'm not the expert. I've already told you I've never done that before. But from what I can see, look, you don't get straight lines like that looking around. It's hard. I've read the story. It's bumpy. It's doing the, 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 the mule or the donkey or whatever is walking in front. And you've got to keep this, this plow, this tiller of the ground in the right direction. You've got to stay fixed and focused in front of you. That's, that's what the verse is talking about here. That's what the, what the passage is referring to, is a, is a commitment to God. There's no looking back. I think such a big mistake of, and I'm not here to just bash modern Christianity or evangelicalism, but you, know, you can always see something wrong in every group. And I think one of the biggest mistakes of modern Christianity and evangelicalism is trying to have the best of both worlds. Trying to have the best of both worlds. We want Jesus, but we want him our way. <laughs> And that's not how it works. 
We want Jesus, but we don't want to stick out and look weird. We want Jesus, but we want him to be a little bit more like everybody else. And Jesus will never be anything like the world. And when we try to fit him into our mold or or make him cool, all we're doing is we're ceasing to worship him for who he really is, and we're just making our self-made idol. All we're doing. I think that's the wrong mentality. There should be, I'm not serving God for, for who I want him to be and how cool and how modern I want to make God. No, we serve God for who he is, who he has revealed himself to be. And when we're in the plow and we're plowing the field for Christ and we're plowing that field of faith and we're trying to live for God, we, we can't be looking back. By the way, that means stop looking back at the regrets too. So many Christians live with their head behind them. Ah, oh, but I made this mistake and I did this. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes forward. Don't look around at all the pleasures. No, keep your eyes focused and committed on Christ. Plowing involves straight lines. You gotta, or you got a crooked field. Who wants the crop like that? you got to have the straight lines. And if you're going to do that, you've got to keep your eyes focused on Christ. It's a commitment to say, hey, I'm not going to be looking around and all these other things. You cannot have a divided mind about serving God. You cannot have a divided mind about serving God. It was Julius Caesar that uh, landed on the shores of Britain years ago with his army. Great Julius Caesar, he's he's landing on the shores of Britain to conquer Britain. He takes his army to the famous cliffs of Dover, the white cliffs of Dover there in Kent, England. And he took his army, he marched them over to the edge, and he told them to look down. And down on the coast where they had parked, or parked, docked their ships, they were all on fire. All of Caesar's ships were on fire. And he had done it. And the soldiers were a little bit dismayed, and they said, what's going on? He told them that I did this so that you'd know there's no retreat. Now you just have to press on and go forward and win. No retreat. No turning. You know, we sing this song so often. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then we say, no turning back. No turning back. A true disciple, I'm almost done, true disciple, there's the test of true conversion. You have to really be saved. There's the test of consecration where you say, Lord, I'm setting myself aside for you, self-sacrifice, not my will but thine be done. There's the test of commitment where it's I'm following Christ I'm not looking around at everybody else to see what they're doing. I am focused and committed on following Christ. There's one more test. Would you look at Luke chapter 14? Luke chapter 14, our last thought today. Hey, we're still 40 minutes out from lunch, all right? So Luke chapter 14, I wanted to read you a couple verses and give you the last test here. We'll be on our way. I want you to look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said to them, If any man come to me, by the way, discipleship is coming to Christ. That's what it is. Discipleship is not some program at church or, or just you know, a, a special service. Discipleship is coming to Christ and following him. But if any man come to me, and look at this verse now. Let me, let's just take a moment and, and, and look at this. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be 
my disciple. Verse 27. For who, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth, down, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he had laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king goeth to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. He's saying, look, if you're going to start a battle, if you're going to build a tower, you look ahead and figure out, can I finish this? Can I accomplish it? Can I do it? And what he's saying is, before you become a disciple of Christ, you better, you better figure out what it all entails and decide you're going to stick with it all the way. But then he says in verse number 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Three times, he cannot be my disciple. Now, a quick reading of this text, it seems to indicate God wants you to hate your father. And God wants you to hate your mother. And God wants you to hate your wife and your children and your husband and, and everybody else. Hate every, in fact, hate your own self too. Hate it all. Now, think with me for a second. What's the main message of the Bible? Love. Always talking about love. So why is Jesus saying, you need to hate everyone? Well, he's not saying that. What we see in our English language here is a phrase that in Greek is a comparative term. It's a, a term of comparison. Let me read you the parallel passage from Matthew that explains this verse. Matthew 10, 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the verse that explains this. Jesus is not saying, hate everyone, because then he turns around and says, love everyone. What he's saying is, Jesus, God, is to be first place. And the comparative term of, if you love anybody on this earth more than you love Christ, you are not truly a disciple of Christ. You have to have Jesus first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's Jesus first. So here's the test. The last test is the test of charity. Charity. Bible word charity is the word love. Love. This is what the test is. The test is what our true number one love is. For some people, their true number, love, the true number one love is themselves. For some people, their true number one love is, is maybe their spouse or something else. And maybe it's not a bad thing. Of course, it's not a bad thing to love your spouse. Of course, it's not a bad thing to love your parents or your kids. But what he's saying is, let's love them, yes, but your love for Jesus should overshadow everything else, that God is first. In fact, in, in John or Matthew chapter 22, Jesus summed up the entire law in two commands. He said, you are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is likened to it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole law of God is about love, but get the picture. The first thing was love God. Love God. It was Harry Truman, a former president. He had a policy to write letters to his wife every day when they were apart. Every day they were apart. If he was going off to do something, she was going back to Missouri to visit family or whatever, <clears throat> then he would write a letter to her every single day. Well, uh, years later, some library or something in, in their hometown of uh, Independence, Missouri, they, they found 
these letters that he had written. And man, people began searching those. People began looking over them, pouring over them to find out, is there any diplomatic history here? Is there any political history? Can we glean anything about his presidency? It was fascinating to a lot of people. But can I just tell you what's the most fascinating thing about that to me? Is that he wrote a letter to his wife every day they were apart. That's the most fascinating thing to me. That he loved his wife that much. Can I just say this before we close here? Can, can we just be honest today and realize that we don't love Jesus as much as we should? Can we, can we admit that? I know we want to, and I know you have a heart, and you know I have a heart to love God. But if we're honest, we should love him a lot more than we do. And when we do, it's going to cause us to consecrate ourselves. It's going to cause us to be fully committed to him. When we get that love right, Jesus has got to be first place. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. I want to just ask you as we close, are you, are you a true disciple of Christ? It's, it's a pretty steep challenge. But there's got to be a true conversion. You've never trusted Christ as Savior. Or maybe your salvation testimony is really weak and you're not sure. Get that settled. Then if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, let's sell out completely for God. Let's, let's be consecrated fully to God. Let's say, not my will, but God's be done. I want God more than anything. Let's be fully committed to him. That we're not going to do our own thing. We're not going to look around at the pleasures of this world. We're not going to put our hand to the plow and look back. We're going to press on forward committed to Christ. And then let's decide today, if I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to have Jesus first as the love of my life. Number one first place in my life is Jesus Christ. And I hope you could say today that those apply to you, but if not, let's decide that we're going to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for your Bible today. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the challenge in my heart to be a disciple.